The RC podcast is brought to you by Cook Lens, makers of the 5i, S4 and Pancros, all handcrafted to give you the famous Cook look, but with the latest innovations and technology such as lens eye data. For more information, go to cookoptics.com. You're listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking and cutting edge imaging. Hi, welcome to this week's RC podcast, episode number 94, coming to you uh, with Jason remotely. How are you, Jace? I'm well, I'm well, but I'm home. I'm just not there with you in the room, sharing That's the true. life. And uh, so look, uh, I just guess uh, it's been a bit of a week for, I guess, more red news than anything else really this week. I haven't seen a lot of uh, Canon stuff, but we have some interesting non-red, we've got a bit of a split this week. We've got some interesting red stuff in the news section. Then we've got uh, who in the red room this week? Uh, we have uh, Stefan Weiss, Weiss uh, from Weisscam because uh, I only wanted to touch base with uh, them re their TCAM project, which was a sort of a kind of quirky one, you know, kind of like those uh, uh, concept cars you see at the motor show and then never see ever again. And I thought, <laughs> hang on, I, need to, I needed to kind of catch up with them because I think they had a little bit of a prototype at. Um, at NAB, which I didn't rush past and didn't have a chance to catch up with them. I just wanted to find out, is this thing, does this thing exist? Is it coming? Uh, and get, you know, find out the, the three, the triangle of, of, of truth, the uh, how much, how soon, and uh, whatever the third thing is. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> I really just wanted to find out, is the it actually triangle coming? triangle of truth. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that's okay, good. The straight line of truth with two things on the the, uh, the locus of truth. Okay. Hey, um, the other thing is that in the uh, equipment section this week, we're going to have another interview, which I don't normally have two interviews, but we do, because one of the things that uh, both you and I, Jace, really liked when we were at SIMPTI, which is an Australian show show, much like an NAB, um, was the OLED monitors. Now, we'd seen them in Vegas, and uh, they're about to ship, and we're just starting shipping. Anyway, I think they're going to become the new de facto standard uh, across the board. I think... Yeah. yeah, we focus a lot on cameras, but most people, uh, even if they're shooting for you know a feature film, are going to be reviewing stuff on monitors, and these yeah. really are shaping up to be um, the way to go. Now, there's a number of reasons for that, but I actually sat down with uh, Sony, a guy called Alex Lofts, who's actually the assistant product manager, um, and he's he basically runs through why the OLEDs are so good. I mean, you and I could talk about it for a bit, but I thought it'd be better to um, clarify some of the tech behind it. And yeah. important thing for the show notes, have some really good uh, graphics explaining some of the concepts, which uh, which Sony were happy to provide us with. The other reason I wanted to do this is, Jace, you know there's normally white papers and stuff that come out from Sony. This stuff is all out now, but the, none of that white paper tech none of that sort of normal uh, online stuff that you can download is out yet. It will be out, right. obviously, in the coming uh, weeks, but I figured, or months, but I've just figured, why not let's get in there straight away and, and talk to these guys about it. Already yeah. a bit of a backlog and a queue to get these monitors, though really? you'll be happy to know they're not, as you'll hear in the interview, screwed up by the uh, Japanese earthquake, tsunami, right. nuclear meltdown. Um, Good. But yeah, so if you're interested in setting up uh, like a grading setup, maybe you've got you know your Epic or your 5D or whatever you've got, your Alexa, and you're going to set up a Resolve setup or you're doing post work. Um, these monitors are really sort of significantly different. This is not like this is the best brand of dream color to have on my Mac type of thing. This is, you know, if you want a reference monitor to really see what pictures you're getting and uh, to understand the color gamuts and the way that it's dealing, especially into the blacks, these are the monitors to go for. There and I, honestly, no, yeah, there's no comparison. 
And, and you'll hear in that interview, Alex says uh, in the interview that I think we'll look back on the last few years as the dark ages of monitors after the death of CRTs and before the birth of OLEDs mm. um, when we went into the dark ages. But anyway, that's all coming up later in the show. Let's Excellent. First, let's first cross, as we like to do each week, to the news desk. And now, the RC News. Okay. So, uh, look, before the news, I wanted just a quick shout out to uh, Ed Moore, um, who um, may or may not, people may or may not know. He's done an excellent uh, course for you for a PhD. Well, I shot with him in London uh, for several weeks. He's a great DOP. Yeah, fantastic. And obviously, it's because of that sort of link. And I've sort of been, you know, on uh, a Twitter friend of his for a while that uh, I was doing a shoot in uh, London that he... uh, was going to help me out on it. Basically, I guess it was going to be like Ed do second second camera for me. It was just going to be a simple talking head shoot, and uh, Ed was going to do like second camera and maybe help with a bit of lighting and stuff. Quite small crew. Yep. Um, and typically of me, I kind of uh, really only thought about it at the last minute, uh, thinking, hmm, steady cam would be good. <laughs> so we uh, literally rushed a steady cam to set, and luckily Ed is an excellent operator. He's so, a good steady cam operator. He is an excellent operator, and I think he uh, and I literally within um, you know I had him like pretty much the whole steady cam torture test, snaking through doorways, tight corridors. There's reflections. There's lights in the way. There's you know. Basically, and also, of course, because it had turned from a small DSLR shoot into a um, larger sort of Steadicam shoot, we hadn't really added things like, say, oh, I don't know, like a focus puller or remote, <laughs> remote focus. And I had him on the 50 mil and the 85 mil almost wide open. He kept wanting to stop it down. He said, oh, yes, I remember you. I'll uh, open that up again. So uh, it was like literally... He was almost being the so focus. So, what camera puller. wasn't on it? What camera? Did you uh, we had my five D on a Steadicam Zephyr, which I hadn't seen before. Which is kind of like it's a bit above the flyer, I think, um, but it's quite new and it's, yep. it was very nice. Yeah, I yeah, think it's similar compatible. Similar size, yeah. So I guess it's kind of like take the flyer or, or the pilot and make it sort of tango compatible. So it's um, well, very I, similar. It's I very had nice. um, I had Ed hanging out the back of a car, and I was lying because we had all the back seats down, and we had someone gun it down a road with a car following him sitting on the back with the Steadicam, me acting as safety. And then the car would come to a halt and he would step out and then I, what? Safety in inverted commas, because obviously Uh, you're a trained safety officer and and a grip and rigger. Yeah, no, I think the technical term for that is fuck off. Um, And then uh, what happened is we'd gun the car away and then uh, he would uh, walk around the, now people getting out of the stopped car. And of course our car will have gunned it down the street and uh, around the corner and away. And so it was a lot of fun actually, but um, yeah, he was a good sport with that stuff. Hey, tell me, how is Ed? He he's excellent. He's excellent. Thank you. But yes, he's probably a little worse for the wear after basically because he had to be the steady cam op and the focus puller, not by he? touching the lens, but yeah. by basically making sure he stayed the same distance with someone walking towards him for oh, three no, and a really? half, four and a half minutes in a single take with a man who, uh, with a CEO of a high profile company who had about 15 minutes and about one take time to uh, to spare for us. And uh, so really no time to screw it up and uh, he nailed it. So I'm very Have, have we so spoken since we had the we're on the segway at Simpty? Uh no we haven't. No oh, that's have, got to go that, 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 that was between eps so that was literally like whatever a week and a half ago. Mm. We, we should definitely push. put that in the show notes. That we had <laughs> that a, was fantastic. That was great fun. We had the the 5D well yeah so we had 
Okay, so I've got a Steadicam, but I didn't have the Steadicam, but we came across a Steadicam operator. Really, really nice guy. Uh, Gorilla, is it Grip? Gorilla Grip? Is that mm. right? Yeah, and he has a Steadicam. Um, well, you'd actually have seen the, 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 what do you call it? It's the one without the handle. It's yeah, with handle. Control, with you're operating it by your knees. You'd have seen that if you looked at our uh, thing on uh, the Deaf Production Company because uh, if you remember, the woman that was signing um, right, yes. was on one of those in the video. Anyway, so we had one at Simpty and so we jumped on. So Jason and I were hooning around this uh, trade show, much to the horror of the trade show organisers uh, on that. And Jason, had you done that before? I, I, mean, I had never been on a Steadicam before. And uh, What I about a Segway? Sorry, never been on. Oh, thanks, Matt. Thanks. That, sorry. Um, no, never been on a Segway before. That was the first time, and I think it was actually. I, I'm. I think it was actually easier to. Well, I'm guessing, but I reckon it was easier just to jump straight on and operate one like this. You're literally operating it with your knees. So obviously, you're doing the um, step for, up. forward and back. Yeah, the yep. step up is interesting because it's literally like stepping onto a horse that has no head, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you don't know which way it's going to move. And you yes, kind and of you, you found the uh, <laughs> the head of the steady cam in your bed that night. <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of step on this thing and you're really kind of like stepping onto some weird sort of magic carpet or some freaking broomstick or something. And um, uh, But it's literally what was really interesting because I was really glad that I did it and then you sort of conned, not conned me, that you cajoled me into doing it, is that it's very intuitive. I thought I thought this would be like a real – I thought – First of all, if you're going to get on one with a steady cam, you're going to need to definitely be patting your head and rubbing your stomach, and it's going to be like a you know a world of hurt and like a license to like kill yourself in about five <laughs> minutes. But I think you could get quite. I mean, if you're already comfortable with steady cam operating, or even any just kind of, you don't have to have a steady cam. I think even if you were just going to do doggy cam or handheld or anything, I think you could get comfortable with operating on one of those quite quickly because I was immediately quite comfortable operating this uh, Segway in literally in a couple of minutes it felt almost in quite intuitive and almost became subconscious that it was almost you know th- you know became starting to um, be you know really almost without thinking about it the the, li- the forward and back is w- literally with just leaning your body weight and the turning is more just by sort of moving the lever I guess between your legs do you ski I have skied so if you're a parallel skier, you're used to special. moving your knees left and right as you go down yes, the hill to exactly. turn. Yes, exactly. I've water it's skied not and wakeboarded that. and all that stuff. Yeah, it's, no, exactly. That's true. That's true. It's it's quite natural, actually. I think it's almost more natural. I think all segways should be this way. I don't know why, you know, I... It's, uh, it's, I'd still stick to my golden rule that I don't think there's any real way to not look like a tool on a steady cam, but you look a little less like segway. on a segway. 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 But you look a little less like a tool <laughs> on the segway without the little granny handle thing. Nah, I think it was good. Hey, um, so awesome. while we're on this mega rat hole before we've even started, yeah. um, so there's something else I was going to say about that, which was, oh yeah, so, so I, took my 5D on and filmed on it while I was on it and fucked up the focus immediately, which brings me back to this whole thing about um, uh, good quality but not particularly expensive follow-focus units that you might use on a Steadicam or in a situation like that. Now, yeah. I had an offer from someone to buy um, a Hocus Pocus uh, one secondhand and I, honestly, the reason I didn't get back to them is I just had this huge sort of family thing that came up and I fell off the place of the planet for about a week. Yeah. But um, 
have you heard anything about what's coming from the guys at uh, is it Red Rock Micro who had the one with their iPad uh, iPhone that fitted into it? No, basically nothing. Um, I haven't I haven't seen anything more than so I, I think they, anything, they right? did have some shipping days that they talked about. Theoretically, that stuff should be shipping by now. Um, uh, I've I've not seen anybody who's got one in the wild or heard anybody on in the, you know, in the Twitter sphere who's uh, saying, "Hey, check out my new Red Rock Microfocus or whatever it is." So no, I don't know anything about that. That would be, I think, that would be one. I think that'd be apart from the expense of buying a motor, uh, which is the most expensive stuff. I think that would be almost you know one of the go-to items a lot of those those remote focuses are extremely expensive um you know you're talking 10 20 you know thousand dollars even with you know with even without motors so yeah it's definitely would be something to worth 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 investigating once it comes out because i was just wondering what the current sort of vibe is on what everyone thinks is the you know the way to go because uh from my point of view i don't know it just seems like um that seemed like a really good product when I saw mm. it. Um, yeah. Now, I don't know that I've actually myself heard any more than you have, but the no. potential of that product, and then that leads you to, you know, somebody else doing a similar thing because that's been out for a while now. Or at least while, as I say, out for a while, I mean, what I should say is the idea of it's been out there for a while, that, that you know, it's been a sort of a talked about thing that if you could make a lightweight follow focus with a reasonable setup, you you know... Yeah. Knock it out of the park. Yeah, and the view factor one, obviously, they are working on motors and they are working on some reasonably, by comparison, cheaper um, you know, controllers. So um, there's a few people working on stuff, but nothing really, um, nothing really, you know, absolutely out in the market right now. Buy it apart from the, the really expensive stuff. Although I'm still trying to find out the details and the price of that uh, kit that we saw at Simti. Uh, that was uh, quite beautiful. That was, um, um, I don't even know the name of it, but it was, you know, it was a top-of-the-line, beautiful Microforce iris remote focus, full-on um, zoom zoom iris focus controller. But um, uh, it was not a brand that I'd heard of before. So, and it may, uh, you know, I think it, could you know come from um, more derived from an Asian Asian country and may well be slightly cheaper. So not sure yet. Speaking out of turn, um, when I find out more, I'll. But it was beautifully made. It was a beautifully made piece of kit. So and looked like it's coming soon. It's still in prototype, but late, late, late prototype stage. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm chasing that one down. Well, on the I just looked it up on the Facebook micro remote. Red Rock Micro oh, yes. site, mm. uh, as updated at the beginning of July. Um, apparently, the they're heading for uh, the summer, which looks remarkably like, you know, um, <clears throat> what we've heard before. But yes, apparently, it's summer 2011 is the kind of latest deal. But there is a Facebook link. You just obviously at facebook.com slash micro remote, all one word. I don't know if it's significant, but there's a capital R, micro remote. And, it is uh, summer. It is it? summer. So where is it? You, no, um, yeah. So uh, as you know, we are intending to be shipping right now. We are caught last minute issue that in certain circumstances a bad cable may lead to some issues. We are wanting to address that, and then we will ship. Honest, cross right. the heart, hope to die. So there you go. Okay, positively well, very close. Because so, that's very the thing. Close. I, I had a feeling like I really want that, 
or something like that for both yes. the Epic and the SLR. I mean, yeah. I really, I just am torn. It's one of those, you know, do you wait or do you jump mm. problems. And uh, well, has anyone got any options for something like that? I don't know. I don't know if I've seen anything that looks potentially as cool as that. Just let us know. Well, I guess, you know, again, if you're going to have major shoot with PL lenses and stuff, you'd probably rent something really complicated like that. But if, you know, if you're wanting something a bit more for gear that you already own then the thought is where is the red Moat pro that had the nice focus knob on it that would theoretically control electronic lenses or can you know say canon canon glass say um <laughs> through the electronic mount okay well this is our worst attempt to get to the news ever but while we're still on like the third rat hole did, did you see that thing that, you know, because I got thrown out of Disneyland, apparently that's because I went to the wrong place. I went to Disneyland, not you Disney went to World. The, you, went, should have, you should have gone to Disney World. Because apparently down, that's the down place Down in to Florida, there are slack. Those, those guys, those, those uh, security guards at uh, Florida are asleep so, at the wheel. So you know why that is? It's because all the security guards in the Hollywood one, in the LA one, sorry, are all like out-of-work actors and out-of-work crew, and they all know their cameras. And so if you go to go through security in, in the one in dude, Anaheim, an they're like, they're like, you do that as an epic, man. I, I add that on my commercial on Thursday, my agency. Whereas over in Florida, they're all like, really? Is that part of your walking frame? What's the deal there? And so it's just apparently, according to what who you you found out about this actually, it was Michael, was it? Uh, yes, it was. Um, let me just get to it. And what's Michael, really what's uh, outrageous Zalatel. is Michael's rig was like the size of a small planet <laughs> compared insane. to mine. I had like a pretty broken down rig. <laughs> I had a Zoom H4n on it and all this sort of uh, prototype kind of uh, hand rig things on it. And he's not oh. just got a bomb; he's got like the old red. He's got the uh, old EVF. EVF. <laughs> so this thing I mean, seriously talk looks about like. Forget hash, not looking. <laughs> hash denied. <laughs> but forget looking like a, a professional camera. This thing looks like, like a weapon. You know, I'm surprised they let it in because you know it, should, it looks like literally a rocket, some kind of rocket launcher. If you yeah, don't so know what be, you're looking at, yeah, I'll be uh, using this to oh, level the Magic Kingdom. They said they let him on the pirates' ride, and it's a small world oh. and haunted house all through this stuff. Uh, the fireworks at, at night and stuff, which is fantastic. So, over, Michael, over I salute you. <laughs> we salute you. <laughs> It's very impressive. Mm. And we salute you, uh, Disney World, Florida security staff. And Michael, if you want to let me have any R3Ds, mate, you know, you know where I live. Okay. So, so um, okay, so let's get back to the news desk. And okay, actually... and we'll try again. And here's the news. And now, the RC News. So, okay, so DaVinci Resolve Lite was released. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, are, you, are you on Lion? I'm online, but I online? do not. I am online. I can't um, run any resolve Thing. at this stage because my Mac Pro is just outside the um, uh, the scope of, of what uh, what Resolve likes to run on. And mine's late 08, uh, uh, late 07. Mm, yeah, late 07. Anyway, it's the Mac Pro 2.1, they call it. And it is just at the point where the cards won't work. I've got the correct, I've got the Quadra 4000 card ready to go. I own a copy of Resolve. I have Resolve Lite. I am ready. I just don't have the Mac Pro for it. How, how do you know what your version of the Mac is? Mac Pro, uh, but because I, mean, I just I don't know. Just that, how do you set a two point one? How two do you know point what version that? two version two point one is what they call it. So you know, obviously the first ones were one point one, and so I don't know what we're up to never, now. I've but, never um, heard about the versioning on. Mm, well, I guess I've I've been so you know I guess I've been I mean my up until this point my Mac. 
Pro has been perfectly sufficient and done a fine job. But now uh, I've sort of dug a little deeper on these, on the, uh, I guess, the um, GPU cards and like the Quadro 4000, which I have. Theoretically, with the Mac, it won't run in this Mac, but um, um, with uh, the right Mac Pro, it'll it's going to accelerate, not just uh, let me give me a real time for... Uh, resolve but it's going to accelerate you know everything there's you know, basically it, it'll accelerate premiere um it'll accelerate you know a ton of stuff final cut pro uh, after effects whatever so hmm. this All is right. you know a brave new world for, for us directors i um, had never had to work out this stuff before okay other news uh and i don't know if you knew this was coming i actually don't think i did know this was coming but uh at uh, the red studios yeah, um, Mr. Finch's team yeah, had I a guess, new toy to play with. I guess what uh, Dave Finch's uh, camera team uh, on stage eight nine at uh, Red Studios were testing out a prototype of the nine inch Red Pro, uh, Red the nine inch Red Pro Touch LCD. Now, this thing looks since well, I'm not going to say it looks silly, but um, it's, it's it'll be fantastic. It's bigger than but the man, camera on the top of the freaking yeah, it's way bigger than the camera. That's huge. I mean, that's like literally you could you could operate it with a stick from ten feet away and and still be able to pick sharps. It's massive. I mean, it's interesting. I would have thought maybe a seven inch might be a go in the meantime. You know, like they had the other the larger. I think it was the seven. What did they have on the um, uh, the larger um, later generation for the red ones was uh, a nice a nice LCD. Uh, anyway, it looks interesting. It's about, I guess, it's almost about the size of like an iPad. Um, uh, so it looks interesting sitting on the top. There's not too many close shots of it. There's no uh, idea of price or what the resolution the monitor is at this stage. All they're saying at this stage is it's shipping in October, and it's fracking huge. But uh, it's cool. I mean, everyone's going to be able to watch that thing. You're going to be able to sort of doggy cam it down the street and be able to uh, have a great view. So it's interesting, particularly if you're not. Uh, can't really without any pro IOs. You can't really run an EVF and an LCD at the same time. That's you know the whole camera crew is going to watch this thing. So very well, interesting. On the going the other way department, mm. uh, if that would make your red package heavier, uh, yes. apparently Weight Watchers. Um, Weight Watchers have been round <laughs> to Red Studios. Red is the biggest loser. Um, so on the scales weighing in uh, this week <laughs> under the yellow line, wow, you're and full uh, of analogies today, Mike. It's very interesting. Wow, you know it's a pop so culture. The heat sink. Spike. Okay, basically, uh, Red's worked out a way of trimming down the heat sink. Now I'm not sure whether it's just the left hand side or both sides, but um, basically, it's trimming half a pound, which is. Uh, 235 grams or so. So basically the heat sink obviously is incredibly important for pulling the, the heat out of the processing units and uh, dissipating it. And so normally, you know, it's just a bunch of stuff that's going to take the heat, obviously be more conductive than the, the stuff below it, and then it'll air cool out from there. Or the fan will run over it and uh, and cool it down. The point about this new heat sink, which is, as you say, about a quarter of a kilo lighter or half a pound, is it's just as efficient as the old one but with this huge reduction in weight. Now, I guess you might argue that, you know, half a pound isn't that much. But actually, as you know, I like the Epic handheld, and so mm. I think half a pound is actually really worth having. Yeah, any, any weight, weight um, loss is terrific, and particularly when it's essentially it's free. The idea is yeah. that um, for obviously this, this new design will will ship with Epic X, 
And for all Epic Game customers, don't worry. Basically, next time you send it back for a service or whenever you can get the camera back to uh, Red, they will swap that, uh, that that panel, be it left or right or both. I'm not sure. They'll swap them over for free. It's just a matter of getting, which is, you know, easier said than done for people on the other side of the world. But um, I'm sure the, the I'm sure the M's will occasionally pop back home for something or other along the way. And they'll do hey, that while. Yeah, no, mine's popping back way. for a... Another thing, but is that actually happening, or is that actually like I thought it was coming soon? Is it actually well, it's, it's send back right now, or coming is it soon, soon, and as in when the X program begins. So it, from from once the X is launched, obviously that these soft these heat sinks will be on board already. Um, so you can't just send your M back now. You have to wait till the X's start to ship. Right. Yeah. So pretty pretty minor, but it's good. Good on them and doing it for free. So that's good. Actually, doing it for free is remarkable, kind of. Mm. I've got to say, they've got a really healthy attitude to that stuff because it'd be completely reasonable to say, oh, you can swap it out and get it for a mere, you know, 50 bucks, 100 bucks or something. Yeah, but it's not like this is like an urgent, your camera is crap without this thing. You know, they could easily have said, oh, well. Just makes the camera better. Until someone picked up an M and said, picked up an X and said, hey, it's lighter than the M and... You know, they could have had a myriad of excuses and said, well, you know, one's, it's, it's slightly different manufacturing inside and blah, blah, blah. You know, they could have talked their way out of that. So, but no. Hey, um, the other thing Speaking that of not the, being for free. Yeah, the backpack, is that what you're thinking? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so there's two things to this. There's a new um, lightweight kind of killer commando uh, rod system for going on the bottom of your Epic, yeah. which is like a lightweight... Yes, similar uh, setup, to Brooks which, and similar to uh, Element Technica's system. So a few people have got something like this. Yes, but, but you can't just... Just to be clear on this, so you can't just put that bit on. You actually still need something to attach that to the tripod. It's not quite as... It's like That's cor- uh, yes. That is correct, I believe. Yes. It is designed on the bottom to work with their quick-release base quick plate system. Plate. Yeah, which, which, by the is, way, I think is, is really good. Awesome. It's yeah. beautiful. And have then the play, second thing. Played with it? I mean, I'm, I have ordered one. Have you? Oh, I have. I ordered. How beautiful. The, the I second that this came out. In the red tent, just undoing it and doing it up and doing it. Just like, well, just I, I, as soon as this came out, I ordered it for the Steadicam and the quick release plate. I already had the Element Technica one, which is the bigger one for me. Right. And I was thinking of getting a smaller Element Technica setup. But I mean, my, I got one of the first ones that was ever going. Red hadn't even got their quick release plate out when I bought this. So, which plate did you get then? Because there's like three different versions. Or there's the bolt on one and there's the slide plate version. So, I got a quick release slide plate red one. And then I got also the Epic, the one that we're talking about now, the new part of the backpack system that came out. Right. With the um, 15... No, but with the quick rod. release, that you can get one that then bolts onto a slide plate, or you, or you can have the quick release plate that literally is just the bolt-on one. You just put your tripod plate straight into the bottom of that. Oh, I don't know. Not sure. Okay, one of And those. then um, the other thing about this, though, is because we're not interested in what I've got. What we're interested in yes. is this new thing that's come out, which is a shoulder rig Essentially for what they the... Call the backpack. Yeah. Yes. Which is in a few parts. One of the parts is a little bit sort of MIA at the moment. So the idea is basically you have this kind of sliding bracket which bolts onto the back plate of the Epic where you might put your red moat. Um, and then there is another kind of sliding sort of uh, cheese plate thing. Um, basically you can have a... Basically it's a way of being able to put a V-lock battery plate on on the back of the Epic. So the parts to it are, uh, I guess, a kind of a, a wedge cage arrangement and then a mounting plate and then uh, another... Uh, you can either put a, 
um, wedge, uh, a cheese plate thing on the bottom, on the back of the camera to put on any other sort of existing V-Lock system you might have or any other battery system. Uh, or you can put on a, they, they make a backpack, uh, backpack battery plate, I guess they, they call it the backpack quick plate. Um, what, a little bit of some of these things. I know I'm being a bit of a cheapskate, but some of these things are pretty expensive. The, I was happy to get the modular assault plate for 400 bucks. I could yep, live with that. I think that's absolutely fine, and that's on par with all of the rest of the stuff. Um, you know, because also Bro- it's not huge volumes. No, yeah, they're not making. No, of course. And you kind of, I don't. I'm not. I'm not too bad on the price. The battery I mean, plate is 650 dollars, right? If you buy the normal, yeah, if you buy the normal I mean, red well, plate, the normal red V-lock plate is about 175 dollars or something. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the difference really between this and that one is the fact that it's got like this machine. It's got the machine machine dovetail, and it has the smaller Epic Limo plug on it versus the larger Red One. And plug. you get bragging rights that you've got a new thing. Yeah, whatever. So basically, for uh, the only thing that's not miss- that's missing in this here in the pricing and what we can't work out is the basically the wedge cage thing. Basically, so it's. Twelve hundred. It's like two thousand dollars, basically, for the battery plate and the bracketry to put it on the back of your camera. But if you want what is and, and what is almost as as nice as as all of that is the this nice wedge kind of um, because it's also a shoulder pad as well. So it basically puts the red vault up at a forty five degree angle above your shoulder, and uh, I think obviously puts the uh, the shoulder uh, it puts the epic on your shoulder at just the right spot for. Uh, a uh, bomb EVF mounted on the spinner mount. So, interesting. It looks nice here on this rig, but uh, we don't quite know how much all of this is going to cost us because this this uh, wedge plate system, the basically the shoulder part, is not in the store yet. So, not sure. Well, anyway, that's, uh, that's sort of it for gear, isn't it? I think it pretty I'm- much is it. I'm feeling I really need some new Canon gear, some new Canon lenses, some new Canon stuff. I'm really feeling my my. Uh, I think the the absence of Canon releases is kind of hurting me a bit at the moment. Uh, right. Okay. What's sort of I, missing in your kit then that you think? Well, it's not so much that though. You know, they always seem to find some reason to get money from me. No, it's just I feel like it's about we're about due. Don't you think we're about yep. due for a serious Canon? It feels like we're about due. It doesn't mean we. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I don't know anything, but uh, just it's well overdue for something, say like five D Mark III. I don't know. Well, speaking of new things, shall we go to the red room? Let's go to the red room. Okay. So, uh, as you heard at the top of the show, um, this week in the red room, Jace is talking to. Now it's a vice cam, right? Because the W is pronounced as a V. Yeah. Vice cam, yes. That's what I want to say, yes. Bischoff says a bad, bad German accents now, yes. Insulting all our German friends. I was just actually in Hamburg. I was in Hamburg in the coolest hotel ever in Hamburg. It just opened the day before I got there. Right. Like the the main, well, one of the dining rooms, the private dining room, was literally a container from a, you know, container terminal. Yeah. That, and they, they obviously cut. Um, a huge door in the side of it, which was then vertically lifted on hydraulics. So you could walk in and out like a room, and then that would also shut to make it a private dining room. Wow. And uh, everything about it was just funk central. And they even had, a, you ready for this, a vinyl room. 
So upstairs there was a cafe, wow. and, you know, like for hotel guests, and then next to it was a large vinyl room. Turntables and vinyl. Turntables and headphones and ton of vinyl that you could go and hang and and smoke, of course, because we are in, we in like. Europe and she likes <laughs> she likes a cancer, and. Um, so that was really cool. And uh, what else did I do in Hamburg? I did a ton of cool stuff in Hamburg. I loved it. Oh, that's right. I went to bed in this really cool hotel that's really funky. Uh, and it's down near the water. Mm. And I woke up and, God forbid, they'd stuck the QE2 outside my window. Wow. Do you believe that? Cool. How dare they? Yeah. The entire QE2. Not just part of it, Jace. The whole <laughs> freaking thing. So I was, you know, took lots of photos of it. And I decided it was a pretty boring photo looking straight well, at the If only you'd time-lapsed it on the way in if you knew it was coming. Well, I just went to bed, woke up. I'm sure they made an announcement in German that in the in the morning to keep your blinds closed because the uh, passengers would be looking through your bedroom window. I didn't get the memo. Or if I did, I, I didn't speak German. If you German. did, you couldn't understand it. But, uh, yeah, I loved it. So, anyway, um, enough of the uh, <laughs> um, mildly anti-German. Uh, I wasn't anti-German. Sorry, okay. I loved Hamburg. Okay. Let's cut now to Jason in the red room uh, with uh, uh, discussion. Sorry, with uh, Stefan Weiss of Weisscam. You are entering the red room. Well, thanks, Stefan, for taking the time. I really appreciate it, mate. Thank you. Can you take us through the TCAM project? Uh, I guess how it came about, and I suppose how far away along it is in its gestation. I guess. All right. After uh, having the Wisecam HS1 and HS2 on the market, we were thinking, so what's going to be the next camera we want to shoot ourselves with? And uh, then we start <clears throat> having brainstormings and as everything. And then we, we broke it actually down to a few major topics, what we want to reach with a new camera. So the first topic was, of course, we want to re- reduce the size reduce the uh, the weight but stay at the same quality so that was more or less the biggest advantage you know make a camera smaller but uh, don't get smaller with the specifications yeah the next thing was okay uh, what if we develop something where would where people could more or less choose the sensor they want to shoot with so we, we, we are thinking about or we're starting to uh, develop a kind of a back end which is more or less able to work with any kind of sensor. And so then we, we followed this idea and said, okay, then what happens if we do a two-third inch sensor and a 4K inch sensor? So the two-third inch sensor is, of course, perfectly for all broadcast applications. Yeah. And the 4K sensor is, of course, for the cinematographers and the feature films and all that. So um, we thought that's going to be a very good idea. So we, we're going to save the time to develop a whole new camera when we go over to a 4K sensor so we can use the back end uh, of the already developed camera and just change the front, which is the sensor board. Right. And so that was basically the idea two years ago, and then we started the whole development, and finally uh, we are going on with the whole development, and we're still following the same idea what we had 
two years ago. So that th there's no change at all during the development time. Well, obviously, the fact that you're going ahead with the project means obviously you've engaged the industry, you've spoken to people, and obviously the feedback has been great, and people have said, yes, please, we want this. So it's a very different camera to and design and layout, I guess, to what we're sort of used to. Take us through, I guess, the way, it, you know, obviously we've started off talking about the modularity, how you have a sensor is different to the rest of the, is separate to the rest of the body. How does that work with the, um, with the, other, the other modules, I guess? Well, um, I just want to, well, I, I want to agree at first with you. We have been on the exhibitions and show the T-concept, and of course, we get a positive feedback. So that uh, give us, let's say, more power and uh, confidence that we are on the right way. Yeah. So let's talk about the modularity on the sensor side. It will not be possible for the user to change the sensor board. That's just not possible because it's still high-end technique, mm. uh, but it's going to be the same T-shape of head, and it's going to be two different sensors. There can be two or three different sensors be inside of that T-shape. So, uh, of course, we have to change it or we have to uh, deliver the requested sensor. It's not able for the people to change the sensor because right. it's, you know, it's so deep inside the boards and the parts and uh, the, um, the routing signals and all that stuff. So that's, that was not the idea. The idea was to have the same T-shape. And now talk, thinking about being a rental house, for example, you may be going to have 10 T-cams on, um, on your rental and then you have a project which is more broadcasting and you, you tell them, okay, so we take three T-hats or T-cams with the two-third-inch sensor, then you have another commercial maybe, you, they want to shoot on a 4K, but you can use the same T-shape and the same hardware, the same recorder, the same uh, hand unit, so you are pretty flexible uh, providing your customers with the right tool they need for their shooting right so take us through the parts of the camera itself then i guess obviously you the um because obviously it is it is being reasonably modular i guess well of course we it was pretty much the same thing what we had with device cameras too we are convinced about that we have to deliver a whole concept only a camera is just half of the product mm. so we of course have to offer a recorder as well and the recorder has the same stylish um, a form factor it's a very small form factor and it can goes you can attach it on any T cam you have so it doesn't matter if you have a two-third inch sensor or a 4k uh, sensor you can use the same recording device and the good thing with the recording device, it's not only modular within our system, within the Vicecam uh, family, uh, it's also an ordinary HD recording device. So, again, if you're a rental house, you can use this recorder right. for any existing HD cameras you already have in stock. So that gives you more freedom in uh, using the recorder on different areas. Yeah. And so, let's say the last very big thing of the the T family is we have the T cam, which is the camera head, the T recorder, and the T pack, which is the data pack. And now I just jump in between um, 
overall explanation where we want to put the Vicecam on the market. So we have the Alexa out there, we have Red out there, and um, we definitely want to jump in between those two cameras. Mm -hmm. So why are we, what, what's the difference compared to the Alexa? The Alexa stops, I think, at 120, maybe 150 frames within the near future. We're going to make 300, 400 frames or even more. So we have a higher frame rate than the Alexa. So now jumping over to the Epic, the Epic does maybe 200, 250 frames, but they do a compression on that. And so we want to stay uncompressed. So our marketing spot or, or market spot uh, going to be higher frame rates but uncompressed. So that's why we had to develop our T-Pack, which, which has the size of a, let's say, it's a very small size or small form factor, but it can capture up to four terabyte of data at a, um, a transfer speed of almost 1,000 megabytes per second. And this is a very key development we had to do because otherwise, where do you want to put all those data? Mm. So there's no chance to use any CF cards or... Um, anything off the shelf. Yes, anything off the shelf. So we had to design our own high-performance T-Pack. And uh, learning from the past, we, we, we're going to offer an external docking station, which gives you the chance to, you know, to make a quick download uh, if you're on set mm -hmm. uh, and you want to see a few files. And we have a high-performance um, inside docking station. I do not know if this is the right word. More desktop, less portable. Exactly. It's less portable, but it's uh, four times the performance in downloading. So, again, the customer can decide what is the right tool for him. So the idea is to have uh, to aim for around 300 frames a second, regardless of which sensor you're opting for. Exactly. Okay. Now, when you're talking about before with the Epic being compressed, of course, obviously the Epic shoots raw as well. You're talking about without cropping the sensor, you mean? Oh, yes. Uh, we, we, we're not cropping, and now let's, let's talk about the raw format. Mm. Um, the raw format is, of course, uh, a tricky thing. Everybody wants to have it, and uh, we are very convinced about that for high-end production or maybe mid-end production, which are not recorded on HD for immediately broadcasting, mm -hmm. the uncompressed raw format is the perfect tool for everything. We are a member of the uh, developers group of Cinema DNG, and we put very much power in to, um, to the Cinema DNG consortium and their uh, development. So we are convinced that we have to and we want to offer a worldwide standard raw format which is uncompressed. So we want to open it up to any software vendors or developers uh, to be able to create their own debayer algorithm or their own, you know, mm. ideas of creating the images out of a raw format. And that's why we decided to go with a standard. If it's going to be already there in, let's say, six or 12 months, I do not know, but uh, we want to have uncompressed worldwide raw 
standard format. So right. because we believe that software developers are they can do a really tremendous good job in, in, in creating a new you know a new algorithm so if you're recording say 4k raw yeah. 4k dng what sort of data rates are we expecting there you know what sort of running times are we imagining well we're going to be able to record 60 frames per second directly onto the data packs so of course you want to do high speed or higher speeds in uh, 4k modus we uh, we will go pretty much the same idea what we had with the hs2 we're going to go internally over a RAM buffer, and then we read it out in an acceptable data rate so to, to fill up uh, the data packs. Right. If you want to stay 4K uncompressed 300 frames or even 180 frames, uh, that's a huge data rate that we, we cannot handle this. Not in a small form factor. It's going to be a, you know, a huge desktops and things, and, that's, and you don't want to have that on a set. Obviously, part of the interest of having such a, a small camera is I believe you have the ability to then use, I guess, like a split cable system to be able to separate the sensor from the recording half, obviously for 3D rigs. Is that right? Exactly, yeah. We separate the T-cam from the recorder. So uh, you can either put it together so you have a pretty, you have a bigger camera uh, but you also can separate the recording device with the data packs oh, far away from your uh, T-CAN. Uh, of course, it has to be wired connected. It's not sure. possible to sure, you know, to transfer the data wireless, but uh, that was our basic idea behind it, to be able to make the camera as small as possible if you need it. Mm. Okay? We think... To make a camera bigger, it's just more or less the most easiest thing because, you know, if you want to have, if you need a long lens, matte box, uh, then you have your uh, follow focus and all that stuff. Mm. To make a camera or just a camera head bigger, it's very, very easy. So, um, but to shoot it handheld, very small if you need it, that was our aim. And that's why we separate the two things and said, okay, if you want to do a handheld or a tiny little camera, put it in your car in a certain angle, or it, I don't know, a, a fast, you know, you want any kind of movement, but you want to do it really mm. fast with a smaller equipment, the T-Cam is the right tool for it. But of course, you can put it on big tripods on doggies and everything. That's just, you know, it's easy. Then you just have all your... Um, your supports, and that's it, you know. Yeah, because once you split the uh, camera, the lens is the biggest thing almost. Exactly. <laughs> You're right, and, you more, and the center of gravity moves to a different point. Yeah. And the funny thing about, of course, because the camera, you know, the back end is away, and the lens suddenly uh, gets the heavier thing, like you said. Mm. That means something really interesting, because uh, just imagine if the center of gravity would be on the sensor plane mm -hmm. on your tripod. Mm. Normally, it's not possible. So if you do a pan, the sensor is always not in the center. Yeah. It's before the center because of the whole system. Yeah. yeah. The and nodal so point of the lens almost becomes the center of the gravity of the whole... Uh, of the whole thing. So it could be, you know, for very tricky things, it could be 
a kind of a nicer-looking pen. Mm, interesting. Clearly, we've, we've talked about the fact that this is very much in development and you are still consulting with the industry and working out what this camera needs to be. But do you yeah. have a, a time frame that you, you're aiming for to, to, to launch? Well, launching is a big word. And so uh, it's, we are working on it and we think we're going to have our prototypes, prototypes to start the first shoots uh, within, I would say, one or two months. Oh, wow. So already okay. finished two-thirds. Well, that, but these are the real ordinary prototypes. Yeah. But in the original T um, concept and everything. So, um, but with sensors uh, and image quality, that's a huge thing because you have to, to, you can just judge your sensor and your quality once it is in your own application. There are many evaluation boards out there. You can test sensors and all that stuff. And they doesn't really... They give you an idea, but finally you have to see what your sensor does in your own application. Absolutely. You and want to see how it works in the box. How how hot does it exactly, get? Exactly. Exactly. So uh, that's why we cannot... We know where we want to go with the image quality, but right now we cannot say if we reach it or not. Okay. But we did reach it with the HS2. Everybody is happy, I think, with the image quality. And so I think we're targeting the right direction. So uh, we know what we have to do. The other part of those big burning questions will be, and again, this is probably even harder to answer, an idea, I guess you'll say, you're aiming between Alexa and, 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 and Epic. Are we, is that the similar thinking in, in pricing, do you think? Yes, exactly. We... We are, you know, we, we cannot offer a camera for over 100,000 euros. I think um, this is not possible anymore for, uh, for the market. So yeah, and we have gone. to be realistically. Yes, I think so. And we have to be realistic. We're going to target specifications which are between the Alexa and the Epic, and the price is going to be in this range as well. That's that's more or less uh, pretty. Yeah, that's yeah, just excellent. what we're targeting. Excellent. We, now, you know, it's it's also obviously we cannot offer a camera for five thousand euro. It's never, you know, we already developed for two years. So uh, we, we and we are a small company. So we, we you know, we want to just have a high end product and, but we are realistically with the price it won't be a product for 100,000 euro sure. it's going to be you know as as low as possible uh, because we want to have the product on the market of course of course and so what are your aims then for the sensor have you got some goals in terms of dynamic range or are you already seeing uh, that this is uh, ahead of where you are with the current cameras well of course we want to reach more than we reach with the with the existing cameras. And uh, of course we do the same thing what all the other camera uh, developers are doing. We're playing with high dynamic range things, with um, double exposure times and all mm -hmm. that stuff. So our aim is of course reach a high contrast range. That's the, the most important thing. We want to have a good sensitivity combined with a 
high dynamic range. Yeah. That's where we, and um, we, we have to learn it from our first prototypes, uh, how the sensor reacts on different settings, and then um, we will see what we're going to reach. But of course, the raw data is at 12-bit uncompressed. We're going to use um, certain kind of curves and pre-processing and all that stuff. So we know where we want to go, like I said, um, uh, the high dynamic range, and we're going to work very hard for it. But I cannot tell you if we reach 11, 12, or even 14 T-stops. Sure. I can't tell you right now. But of course, we would love to have 18 T-stops. <laughs> um, but <laughs> we, we just don't know. Sure. What the reality going to be? Okay. Well, it's good that people know that it's you know it's we're we're starting afresh with new sensor and you know anything's possible. Oh yes, we we started from zero. It's bad for us because it's you know you have the whole development mountain right in front of you, <laughs> and uh, but we just we decided not to use an existing technology because then it it wouldn't fit in our new concept. Moving on, excellent. So, all right. Well, obviously, you've you've talked about the fact that you're involving, or you're keen to hear from the industry and from people who, particularly, say, with three D and metadata and stuff. Um, how do people become a part of that? And how do people get involved? I mean, are you having beta programs, or how do you get that information from the industry? You want to hear about metadata. You want to hear about Codex and compressions. How do people get that? In rather than just signing up necessarily for a newsletter, is there uh, is there a more deeper level of involvement if people are really obviously uh, that keen? Well, um, of course, you know we we started the HS one, I think seven years ago, and that was our point where we started already talking to the industry. Mm. And I just want to explain who we are at WiseCan. We are all from the set. Me, myself, I'm at EOP. I'm not a technical, uh, uh, I'm not a software developer. So uh, I'm on the set for 15 years and mainly shoot commercials. And so the set side, from all the information, what we need from the set, we actually have it our own because we more or less shoot daily with our existing cameras. Mm -hmm. So we, we know the needs from the set very exactly. Of course, we listen to all other DOPs and first assistants, what they want to have. That's why we are on exhibitions. And then we ask the people, what do you think about it if you do it this way? And uh, so that's a kind of uh, conversation we have more or less all the time or uh, we see it ourselves uh, when we're shooting. Uh, of course, we have raw data in the HS2. We uh, already have contacts to, let's say, four or five major grading software companies. Yeah. So they know, we know each other, and so we, we talk to them and uh, we tell them our ideas. They give us feedback, and, uh, uh, and basically, I can tell you that more or less every software company would like to have an open, uncompressed raw format yeah. because uh, they want to do their own thing and they want to implement it in their own uh, high-end grading suite or uh, compositing suite. So that's that's mm, obviously, and uh, we just you know we talk to them and uh, say them we want to do it 
the same thing. Yeah. And so we come together. How can uh, people register to find out more? Well, um, we well everybody can go uh, can go on the follow the tea and sign either on the newsletter for Vicecam or follow the tea. Uh, marketing wise, we have we're gonna launch a new website where we put Vicecam and the sub website together, and uh, then everybody just can you know sign and tell them we we want to have more information and. To be honest, I think within the next weeks and months, we can come out with way more interesting information because development from scratch is, even if you're DOP and even if you really look forward to or if you have fun with technical details, it's so deep inside on board design and parts, selections and all that stuff and FPGA uh, development that's not really interesting for the market, I think. Mm. Uh, but now, once we have the prototypes, it's going to get more information to what the image quality is and how we create it and uh, what the file format is at the beginning and if we can go over to Cinema DNG and all that stuff. So I think from now on, it become way more interesting for the people to... Um, to subscribe the newsletter and get new information from that. Excellent. And we, with the new website, we're also thinking about launching a technical discussion channel mm-hmm. and just tell them what we are doing. This one, this may be going to be placed on Facebook because they have a kind of a forum and discussion and everything. So we have to work it out, which is the easiest way to stay in contact with interesting pe- with interested people and um, yeah, that's what I can say right now. And uh, just to make sure, uh, we from our side, we we just you know we want to tell everything to the people. Okay, so everyone can go to follow dash the dash t dot com, and exactly. uh, yeah, and uh, follow follow on from there. Thank exactly. thank you. Thank you, Stefan, for taking your time. I really appreciate it. I'm glad we chatted. I really appreciate it. I look, I look forward to, uh, to seeing more. All right. Thank you very much for your time, Jason. Excellent. Cheers, mate. Have a good time. Bye-bye. Okay, well, that's really cool. And, you know, I'm kind of impressed with the pricing, I have to say, that, uh, that they're going for. I've got to say, the build quality on their cameras generally is really good. I played with one, not that one, obviously, but uh, one of the other ones. And yeah. And so, a bit of a cliche to say good German build quality, but you know, it does tend to be the case that uh, German manufacturing has, has really high standards and it's really good, so that sounds really interesting. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think you know, if, they plan, if they pull off everything they want to do, it's good that they're involved in the industry now and it's good that they want to go with you know, open standards and cinema D&G and stuff like that and they, that they yeah. really want to sort of stick kind of to their roots by having you know, not pegged at like 40 or 50 frames a second. They're looking to go to higher frame rates. So, yeah, hopefully that'll be interesting. That'll be something to on, on the list to see at uh, NAB. Thank you, Stefan, for taking the time. Okay, so uh, moving right along, we um, went to Simpty a week and a half ago, and apart from dicking around on um, on these things, we ran into the friends at Sony. Now, normally we'd be looking at Sony cameras, but they had a really good display of OLEDs there, and we've been tracking these for a while mm. because, as we said at the top of the show, it really felt like um, 
what we've missed in the industry is a really good de facto standard. And Jace, you remember the days we used to go into any grading suite anywhere. And I think I, I mentioned this when I speak to um, Alex, there'd be a BVM in the corner, wouldn't there? I mean, it was just the monitor to yeah. go to. You could just yeah. rely on where you were. Yep. Um, so we thought it'd be really good to follow up with this, with a story. Now, look, earlier in the show, we were talking about um, the red shoulder backpack system. And I should have said it then. I'm going to say it about it and also about this, that every week we do show notes, we go out with the show. Jason uh, sort of spearheads that. In those show notes, you get... So if you're thinking, well, it's kind of hard to hear this on a podcast without a picture, that's where the pictures go. Um, you can download that. It'll get in your iTunes feed and you can actually see what we're talking about. Follow not along that we, the bouncing ball. Yeah, because obviously if you're not familiar with uh, photochromatic diagrams and gamuts and wide gamuts, or if you are and you just want to see how much of a difference there is, yeah. uh, some of these diagrams from Sony are really, really helpful this to is see. particularly now, handy for this particular interview, absolutely, because some yeah. of those diagrams make it, you know, and I'm not really into sort of diagrams like that, but they make complete sense when you, uh, uh, when you, hit, when you hear the, uh, the commentary. And one of them in particular, how it scans down versus an, an LCD scanning and versus a CRT scanning, is just much better seen in a really simple three-picture diagram. Um, but having said that, it's, um, it's quite comprehensible because Alex is a great guy and, and mm. uh, explained it pretty well, I think. So shall we cross to my interview I recorded at their headquarters uh, a little while ago? Let's do it. So I'm joined by uh, Alex Lopes. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Not a problem. So look, once upon a time, I uh, sat in a suite, and I could almost guarantee you, no matter which suite it was in the facility that I was at, that we'd have a Sony BVM monitor in the corner. And that BVM monitor was uh, obviously a tube monitor, but it was also the de facto standard. I'd go into the Telesony suite, they'd have another BVM, I'd have a BVM in my flame suite. You know, no matter where I went, I went over to somebody else's facility, they had a BVM. As long as we had Absolutely. them all lined up pretty much. We knew that green was green and, you know, purple was purple and it all kind of matched and it all looked the same. And notwithstanding, obviously, you might have, like, lighting conditions in the room, we were very, very comfortable with what we were getting for both SD and, and HD. And then the world changed because, obviously, CRTs kind of went away. And we've kind of been, it feels like, in a bit of a, uh, an in-between world because we've had some good monitors and we've had, obviously, some people even hoarding CRT monitors. But we haven't really had, I don't think up until now with the OLEDs, something that I would really say was a natural successor to take that, um, that mantle and carry it forward as being the de facto standard. Am I just, are you hearing that from other people? Yeah, I think, I think looking back in a couple of years, we'll see it as the monitors of dark ages, basically. Yeah. This, um, this period where no one's happy with, with any standard. Um, everyone's kind of trying out and feeling out what's out there in the market, but no one's actually come up with the goods essentially with and, and you know we we know it as well that our lcd product um couldn't quite get to that crt standard we couldn't replace crt with our lcd products uh, at that top end at that reference end of the of the scale so there's obviously benefits of lcd but when it comes down to it picture is is the be all and end all it hasn't been it hasn't been able to replace it so look let's let's start at the beginning um with what the heck an oled is uh, basically, OLED is uh, organic light emitting diode. Um, essentially, a very, very thin sheet um, of, of a monitor. Um, they just put a charge through an anode and cathode and the actual OLED composition itself, um, and that emit, emits light um, through the top or through the bottom of the panel. Now, it does a couple of things really, really well. Um, so let's work through those because I think that'll illustrate why we feel so strongly that these monitors are good. But I should point out, while I've been talking about 
BVM monitors. I myself am probably going to buy a PVM monitor now, just mm-hmm. for those that don't know the product range. The, the broadcast standard, the de facto that we used to have in every suite, we used to be a, a BVM and not... Unsurprisingly, I guess back in the day, they weren't particularly cheap, but they were, as I say, really the de facto standards. And then there's the PVM. Now, the PVM Mm. to my wife's eyes is identical, (laughs) but it's actually the professional, and the professional is like theoretically one notch down from the broadcast. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. Basically, the way we refer to them is uh, the BVM is our reference monitor, uh, and our PVM is is a picture monitor grade, Um, but, but... with that OLED panel, so it's obviously a higher grade for us. So most of the stuff we're discussing is applicable to both the BVM and PVM, but apart from the price, <laughs> what's the difference between the two? Just from a, yeah. how am I going to notice it? From 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 the top, I guess the best the best way to look at it is they're both the same panel. Um, the BVM E series is hand picked panels essentially, so they're the, the cream of the crop um, when they come out of the out of the manufacturing plant. Um, the PVMs, the general panels, they, they also meet very stringent um, specifications, um, but they're just missing that kind of cream at the crop, the, the cream of the, uh, of the, uh, the panels. And we're really at out. the point where you'd need to be very trained to mm. notice the difference. Because I'm not exaggerating. Oh. Most people would not be able to pick the difference. In, in terms of the panel, absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the, the, the processor, the display engine, there is a difference. Um, and you put it through a couple of tests, you will see it. Biggest difference is a 12-bit engine uh, for the BVME and it's a 10-bit engine for the PVM. Right. Um, and then there's some unique features of the BVM series over the PVM series. Okay. So let's discuss it in terms of these things about OLED that we kind of like. And mm. I'm going to start with a really simple one, which is that, because <laughs> historically it really hit me, when we went off or tried to go off using tubes, one of the first things was plasmas. And you see this terrible kind of lag and you'd also get ghosting and stuff. And then with the LCDs, you still get a bit of a kind of lag in the sense that if I had some white text moving across the screen, like maybe a scrolling super, but it could be like a graphical logo, very high con, mm. mm. it would almost seem to kind of smear to my eye. Like it would literally kind of have almost like a motion blur. Now, that's not the case with the OLED, is it? No, not at all. Um, you'll see that... Um, greater grey response time on, on OLED is actually, you're talking nanoseconds rather than microseconds that you see in LCD. Um, OLED's actually hundreds of times, or can be hundreds of times faster than CRT as well. So what actually is greater grey? Um, basically, uh, your switching speed um, from, from colours. So if I can't switch colours quickly, they can kind of hang around uh, seemingly causing that artefact that looks almost like motion blur. Correct, yeah, it's a kind of persistence on the screen. So at a, literally a scrolling super like you might have on a news show where it's scrolling across the you know, ticker tape style of uh, latest breaking news, mm. I actually find it easier on my eye to read an OLED than I do on an LCD quite significantly. It's not like a subtle difference. It's, it's like you can really tell. It's significant. And that, that was one of those, those wow moments when in the presentation we did in, in SMPTE, um, just lining those monitors up against each other. Um, it's the it's a really strong point. Um, it's just very sharp. The edges are very sharp on, on OLED. The text stays clear, no matter which way you put it, vertically, horizontally. Um, the, the monitor has got very very fast response time. Um, LCD, it's it's apparent that it just goes across the screen. Um, it become, becomes quite hard to read, um, and it strains the eye. Yeah. Now look, that's not a luminance problem. It's obviously a you know, changing colours problem. But mm. if we can switch to just thinking about colour now for a second, mm. uh, the other thing is, you know, we think of monitors as being um, representative of colour, but of course at a technical level we have to worry about what the gamut is of them. 
And you have two issues here. Firstly, obviously, I might have a gamut that's defined by, a, say, a REC 709 spec. Well, that's fine. Yeah. But what the OLEDs is is sort of providing us is holding that range of colours, that gamut of colours, really well into the blacks. Can you talk about that? Um, so in terms of, um, of uh, the full saturation of colour uh, through high luminance and low luminance, because OLED um, can keep producing colours all the way down to black um, because the, the, there's no backlight, there's nothing to taint the actual picture, um, you'll see that full colour saturation through all the way from high luminance to low luminance. So LCD, uh, you know, will look look fantastic in, in bright. You know, when you're looking at a bright image. You know, your home TV, for example, um, when it's bright, it looks fantastic. But you try and get down to some of those darker images, it just becomes grey. Um, the, the colour space really squeezes in, um, and it can't represent that full colour space. You look at OLED; um, it's got the ability to represent the full colour saturation across its its wide uh, gamut, um, and that is giving a true uh, representation of what's been captured. Yeah, so literally if I was grading with it and I had a director that wanted to have stuff there, it was you couldn't really see in the blacks, there was some kind of monster or something. Mm. Um, if I was filming that, I'd be getting the picture, it'd be great, but when I'm displaying it, I literally would have a sort of a desaturated black component to a red monster. Correct. Whereas I'm now going to actually have that kind of richer red as it goes to a dark blood red as it goes right through to sort of to black. 100% correct. Um, so tell me, we mentioned, you mentioned wide gamut in that. Mm. So I described this as being, say, something I might be feeding with a broadcast signal, and a broadcast mm. signal might be REC 709. Mm. That is not open to interpretation, right? You guys have to reduce the gamut that's defined by REC 709, which is not, yeah. by today's standards, particularly hard. What's this wide gamut you're referring to? Um, the monitor can, as you said, do the standards, so SMPTC, um, ITU, and EBU. Um, but we'll do DCI-P3 as well. Um, it misses up a little bit on the green to red side, uh, but that's it's very slight and it can be emulated. Um, but DCI-P3 is a very wide cinematic uh, gamut, um, and the, the OLED monitor will actually reach that gamut um, and, and work to a full a fuller colour space across um, the, the range. So if I was feeding it with a signal, let's say I shot something on film which has a pretty wide gamut, and mm. I've transferred that well mm. and got a, a lot of range of colours in my digital file, maybe I've even ended up with CG and it's an OpenEXR file, I'm literally going to be able to say, see a, a wider range of colours at the one time or whatever on my screen than I'd be able to using the standard kind of broadcast a- spec. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's significant. Um, and I, we'll put that on the website, I'm, I'm guessing, as well to... So you can uh, have a good look at that, that gamut that the OLED can produce. Because for many of us, we're producing stuff for, say, cinema or for you know, digital distribution, and we don't necessarily need to be limited to REC 709. I mean, REC 709 is great kind of standard, mm. but it really sort of harks back to 601, which, of course, harks back to just PAL and NTSC, and, and there's no reason that that is the be-all and end-all of sort of colour spaces. No, not at all. Um, and, and the OLED will, will work to, to whatever you want to work to. So what about um, calibration and being able to set it up correctly? I mean, what sort of tools do I have to actually calibrate the monitor? Uh, with this, the monitor, it's got auto white balance. Um, we recommend a couple of probes um, to use, including I1 is, is the one that we're kind of recommended to, uh, to take on ourselves. I mean, it's a, it's a fairly simple probe, but it does the job. It's easy to carry and it's not expensive. But from what we've found, um, it does give a, a proper analysis. Um, 
And if someone's really obsessing with CRTs, uh, really mm. in, uh, in nostalgia mode, mm. isn't the PVM actually able to do a CRT kind of emulation thing? Both of them are able to oh, do really? a CRT emulation. Um, How does that work? Um, through, uh, through manipulating the gamma, um, it'll, it'll emulate the, the gamma um, of, a, of a CRT monitor, as well as doing 2.2 uh, 2 and 2.4. Uh, and the PVM... Uh, sorry, the BVM will do 2.6 as well. So that's, you're talking about gamma now, 2.6 gamma? Gamma, correct. So that's going to basically let me, if I wanted to, um, kind of get back to that baseline that I might have romanticised about from 10 years ago. But there's no reason I have to run it that way. I can just... Absolutely not. So, yeah, so it did come up a fair bit in the demonstrations that we've done that, um, you know, we want to be able to replicate what we have on CRT. Um, not a problem. We have built that into to, to both monitors. Um, a few more options in, in Gamma for BVME uh, than PVM, but um, the, the option is there to, to replicate CRT. So obviously some younger cinematographers and certainly some people you know, uh, younger in post, they kind of grew up or cut their teeth on LCDs. And so for some of those people, I'm hearing that they think that maybe the OLED seems to flicker a bit. Can you talk about that? There is a... Uh, you may notice a... Uh, a very slight flicker, so certainly less than CRT um, in an OLED in comparison to an LCD, um, particularly at, at lower frame rates. Um, essentially, it comes down to LCD is like a hold type display uh, where the images are written over the previous frame, frame where so the flicker then is unnoticeable. Um, CRT for those that, that you know are from that era as well. Um, and still lucky enough to be using them. Um, <laughs> it's an impulse-type display, so it scans line by line, so you will actually see some flicker in, in CRT, as you know. Um, OLED basically is somewhere in between. Um, they've picked it to be... It scans um, with a certain amount of lines. Um, it does cause flicker, but it is certainly less notable, noticeable than CRT. Um, the idea was, was basically to get good motion image out of it, um, and they're trying to find that happy medium between the two. So I guess if you were to walk up to an LED, the first thing that you just get the impression of is that the blacks are, like, really, really black. <laughs> I mean, it's just like... And, and, and it's, you sort of think that it's black looking at... I mean, if you literally were to turn them on in sequence, you go, yeah, well, that looks pretty black on that LCD. Oh, that looks mm. a bit black. And then you turn on the LED, oh, my God, that looks really black. And I was actually lucky enough to see a prototype, like, huge one at NAB that was sort of under cloth and in the back room, so it was enormous. Hush, hush, yes. yes. But in every case, the first impression when they sort of pull off the cloth and go, ta-da, is you go, my God, that's really... And it's not contrasty, because that's wrong, but it just feels really deep and rich. Is that just because there's a lack of backlight, or what, why am I getting that kind of black? It really is just because of lack of backlight. So we, you're just getting the light that, you, that is coming out of those, those, those pixels. I mean, in all honesty, it's just the, one of the benefits of, of OLED is that it's beautiful blacks that you get out of it and the proper colour reproduction that you'll get. Because even a CRT, kind of, in, if you switch to a CRT off, it would mm. look blacker than if it was sitting on with a black frame on it. Absolutely. So it's the same phenomenon, right? But I just sort of felt like when you switch the OLED off, the black was the same off and on. It was like... There yeah. are, it just didn't seem like there was an ambient black, if that makes sense. There, there is none. There's no bleed. There's no, there's no kind of halation or any kind of effect like that. But they've made sure that um, they really get the most out of those, those black images. Okay, so we've been raving about this for a while. Normally I'd throw people to, because you guys do really great white papers and stuff, and mm. over the years, God knows, I've digested a few of those. Mm. Um, I don't think they're quite out yet, right? But there's stuff coming. There is definitely stuff coming. We've actually um, we've just had a, a bit of a look of what 
is going to be released for us. Uh, we're going to have all kinds of sales manuals and, and information. There will be white papers um, and more and more stuff as we as we progress. Um, and it's all very close. You're talking this calendar year for, for everything that we can get. Right. So if somebody's interested in buying some monitors for a facility, literally like the last calendar quarter of this year, is that the kind of... Uh, we've, actually rele- we've actually delivered our first monitor to a customer, our right. first BVME 250, um, and that's just gone in, um, and there'll be a press release shortly about that one. But we'll, we've, uh, we're shipping uh, the 25 inches, uh, the PVM 25 inches in September, um, but we've already got a mountain of orders for that one. The 17-inch BVME will be next, um, around about the same time, um, and then the PVM 1741, uh, probably October, uh, realistically. So I guess I should just ask this question because it's Sony and hence Japan, but mm. I guess this is... Uh, not affected by anything that had to do with the earthquake, tsunami, nuclear. It, it was it was affected, but it, it set us back a couple of months. But that was about it. So um, the only thing that's affecting us now is is demand. Right. So when they start shipping, they should continue to roll out. It's not like there's going to be a few hours. Oh and no, no, after no. That. We didn't actually. I think they may have produced a few prototypes prior to the events. Yeah. Um, now you're looking at full production, um, trying to keep up with demand. And. For those that haven't actually seen one, I mean, they are, by the nature of the technology, sort of even almost thinner and sort of more compact than we're used to with sort of plasma or LCD. And they really are very thin if you're mounting them on the wall of a studio. And they really are not, like, cumbersome. They're not, not only are they thin, but they're also quite light. Um, and the power drain on them, because there's no backlight, there's no constant lighting, is, is less. All right, so they're better in terms of fuel efficiency? I mean, fuel. Fuel, fuel what I mean, like, yeah. power efficiency. Power efficiency, yeah. The energy efficiency is... is uh, up to 40% better, I believe. Oh, brilliant. Look, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. Thank you for that. That was terrific. I really, um, you know, the scary thing about them is that they are so good. and They're only going to really, well, not that they don't make sense now, but they're going to make a lot more sense when everyone has these. And <laughs> at the moment, you're sort of grading on a, or, or you know, your reference monitor is far exceeds anything that's out there in the real world and nobody is ever going to see it as good as you are going to see it right now on one of those OLEDs. So you've kind of almost need like a uh, crap it up LUT so that it, um, uh, you know, kind of looks like the rest of the world's going to see your vision. (laughs) But to be really clear about this, some people think that there's nothing wrong with, say, grading on their Apple monitor. And I don't think that's the worst thing that you can do in this world. It's not like heinous beyond belief. But, Jace, I mean, you, you must be used to, whenever you're directing, there is normally a completely separate reference monitor that you're looking at, which is the monitor of the sort of picture yeah. that's going to go out yeah. and not something covered in Apple monitors. I mean, you, you, you can judge it. You can judge to a certain extent off your laptop screen, but at the end of the day, you're not really doing yourself justice yeah. in a professional sense. Once you get professional, and I think there'd be no suite you'd go in that wouldn't have a reference monitor, is there? Yeah, so, no, absolutely. And I think, but the you know they are, and as we've seen on some of these demos, when they put an LCD and an excellent CRT and uh, all this stuff together, there there is differences. They all look, you know, they are there. They all have their own, as good as CRT is, they all have their own artifacts, and that's interesting about these demos. But if 
these demos come around to a trade show near you, you should go catch them because it's a very, if nothing else, it's a really interesting education about OLED just as a technology, but also what is you know the issues with backlit LCD versus CRT and you know black light black black writing on white writing on a black background and how that can halate and you know you get to see all the artifacts on stuff that you up until now have seen held up upon high as this amazing you know gold standard so it's an interesting um, you know education to sort of see you know why this is why this is the future because it is you know there's the blacks are black because they are black <laughs> you know there's no and colors are consistent from the bottom to the top you know from all the way down to the lowest lowest levels of light to the right to the top it's completely consistent and the full range of color and you get to really see the limitations on technology up until now and this it's pretty hard to imagine something even besting this kind of technology apart from stuff that's just getting cheaper so but as we start to get as more and people start to get their hands on really good quality grading systems like you know resolve etc and as that becomes more democratized and becomes more and more at on your desktop you're going to more and more need a um a good reference monitor to have other than just checking out you know other than just you know, looking at it on three or four, you know, the couple of plasmas and a couple of laptop screens and just kind of, well, it looks kind of good on all of these. So I imagine somewhere in there it's it's good. You know, you more, you're more going to want to have a reference monitor at home now that they're becoming a little bit more available, like, say, the um, the PVMs that we saw at Simti are just, you know, it's hard to, unless you're sort of like... BVMs are excellent, but you know the PVMs are so good now yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that you you just can't. Uh, it's really hard to not not hard to justify. Obviously, if you're a full on you know fifteen hundred dollar an hour grading suite, it's very easy to to justify that difference. But for the average, you know, for someone as a reasonable you know, but sort any of professional a, setup, any professional yeah. setup should go to a, a PVM at least sort of level, absolutely. At least, yeah. And they're quite you know reasonably affordable for five, whatever six, you know, for the seventeen-inch monitor, and that's perfectly great. You can have a nice plasma for clients, and then just a small double-checking, you know, smaller seventeen-inch or so PVM monitor for uh, just 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 to um, you know just to make sure that if you're getting down to critical levels of something or just deciding making sure that particular red of the that pack or that you know that um yep. that that um yeah but that's what you want is it you're doing a grading of a pack shot you exactly. need an absolute monitor that you can say look what monitor should i be looking at yeah that one it'll never look better than here you know and if it does look crappy as as on mr and mrs bloggs's um 10 year old well, you can't really account for that can thing, you? no that's right but at least but it'll, you need a, but it'll you need be a, their you fault variations off yeah exactly you can have variations off the of the midpoint the correct point yes. but you need to get the correct point right yeah hey um I'm, I'm going to have to wrap it up, yep. but I just wanted to point out a couple of quick things. Also, uh, just to give you a scheduling uh, you loyal listeners that have got all the way to the end of the app, uh, you know, you're really our, our kind of people. Anyone that's got to this point in the podcast, you're, you're our peeps. Come over to our place anytime Jason's buying. And um, <clears throat> what we thought we'd try and do is get more regular with when we're putting stuff out. So starting, hopefully now, we're going to be putting out our RC podcast near the end of the week. Uh, and we're going to try and do it as a bare minimum every two weeks, though some weeks when there's a special event on or whatever, we'll go in the gap week. So 
fortnightly as standard with an extra ep in the middle if uh, and when it's appropriate. So, for example, if we were at NAB, there might be a special ep because, you know, you're doing special things from yeah. a trade show kind of thing or a cine year or whatever. But normally speaking, we'll go out fortnightly um, near the end of the week, depending on which country you're in, that's either Friday or Thursday. And uh, we're trying to get that more regular. So on FX Guide, we're now locking in all the podcasts to make them much more regular and much more predictable. So Are you locking me in? Help you guys? Are you trying to cramp my I'm, style? Are you trying to... I'm trying to help these poor people that are listening to us to have some idea what the hell I is have, going on. I uh, have been a little bit all over the place, yes. I'm off I've to Vancouver away. for SIDGRAPH, uh, <laughs> right. so that's uh, 7th to 11th yep. uh, of August, and looking forward to it. It should be really good. If you are a listener and you're going to SIDGRAPH because you're one of those people that uh, crosses over that uh, CG boundary, then uh, we've got some meetups and stuff happening in Vancouver. If you check out in the forums, we'll um, flag when they are. We don't tend to broadcast those in the podcast to avoid uh, just everyone and their dog turning up, especially as we're buying at the bar. Um, but uh, SIDGRAPH is a great, great uh, conference for doing stuff. And if you remember SIDGRAPH, I think it was last time in LA, we stumbled across that uh, chap who had worked for NASA setting up the Apollo mm. lenses. So there really are just unexpected, really cool, amazing things that just sort of happen at SIDGRAPH this year, as I say, in Vancouver. The first time it's been outside of America. Right. Uh, and so it's crossed the border into Canada. So all you Americans, you're going to need a, a passport. That's the blue thing with the crest on it. That apparently you can now afford because you didn't default and cause a global meltdown and full catastrophe. Though, as we're recording this, that's the best guess you on what You can now happens. afford to put that holiday that you'll need it for on your credit card. Card. Um, yes, so that's all happening. And, uh, of course, Jace, you're on the Twitters. As I am. I am Wingrove on Twitter and uh, jasonwingrove.com or vimeo.com slash wingrove. And I am uh, Mike Seymour on Twitter, and of course I'm over at FX Guide all the time. Right, and at the end, Mike, we always do our Twitter uh, shout-out. What have, have we, what have we got? Well, I thought, actually, a couple of times I've mentioned just how much I admire Ron Howard as a director, and Ron Howard's actually on Twitter's as at real, well, you know, the real Ron Howard as just one continuous set of three words. Right. So, real Ron Howard. And... Um, I, I really admire this guy as a director. I, look, some of his films some people may not like, but on the whole, I'll pay attention to any uh, Ron Howard film that comes out. And I particularly like his style of filmmaking. It's very collaborative, very um, mm. uh, involving, and, and it just seems like, you know, you kind of um, maybe one can romanticize directors as being, you know, nice guys. But I think there's almost no one in the industry that speaks badly of Ron Howard. Yeah. Uh, but when you hear him talk, just some you of can his hear why. Occasionally. Yeah. Well, Okay, but, you know, every director, apart from, you know, present company excuse, has made a dud uh, or one that doesn't sit with your view of the world. It's true. But he's made a lot of really, really good films, and I think he makes good choices. And, uh, yeah, no, I think, I think I'm mm. going to recommend... Excellent. Ron Howard uh, of Beverly Hills, California. Excellent. As this week's Twitter shout-out. Did you have a blog you wanted to shout-out, or should we get that on, on the flip side next I'll week? I'll get it. I'll do two next time. Okay. Okay. I've been away. Sorry. No, no, that's fine. Okay. So, I'm going to go. I'm. Uh, we're going to be more regular with stuff like this. I'm going off to take my fibre now. <laughs> I was wondering where you were going with that. <laughs> guys, thanks so much for being with us this week. Uh, as always, we really appreciate it. Thanks to our team thanks, who um, edit this behind the scenes. And, uh, Jace, I will see you when I get back from Canada. Excellent. See you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening. 
Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.